you would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 20. It's going to be slightly different. It's going to be slightly different than what you have in, the, in your bulletin. Um, we, uh, we're going to make it to verse 31. I'm going to <clears throat> introduce this subject before us uh, with an illustration that I recognize could be touchy. It's touchy because it's a uh, pastor making comments about another denomination. And it's touchy because it's making comments about another denomination to which this pastor used to belong. And uh, I want to start just by saying that although you cannot see the motivations of my heart, I do hope that you can trust that nothing I'm going to say is coming from a place of superiority or arrogance. For the first 26 years of my life, I was in the United Methodist Church, and I'm very grateful for those years, especially First Methodist in Starkville. That building will always feel like a second home to me. I I, I explored every inch of it. Uh, There were faithful Methodist ministers who baptized me as an infant. And I grew up reciting the Apostles' Creed and singing the doxology every Sunday And my love for hymns, no doubt, comes from the Methodist Church and those that they claim, such as Charles Wesley. Uh, It was in the Methodist Church when I first felt an internal call to ministry. It was at a Methodist church camp where I met Molly Savoy. And my first full-time ministry position in a Methodist church brought me to Corinth, Mississippi. So there's a lot to be grateful for. I don't know how much you know, but there is a major exodus currently happening in the Methodist church. I was texting with my parents Friday night. They, They really have their ear to the ground when it comes to this. They told me that in the Mississippi Conference alone, close to 100 local churches have already voted to disaffiliate from the denomination. There are 200 more in the process of disaffiliation. And there are 12 churches that are actually voting, I think, today. In our own community, I believe Gaines Chapel has already voted to disaffiliate. And if you drive on Shiloh Road, you'll see that First Methodist lacks the word united on their new sign. And I think that's telling. What the Methodists are experiencing right now is what the Presbyterians experienced some 50 years ago. We went through the same 
thing. Our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, was formed by a number of churches who decided to leave the mainline liberal Presbyterian Church in 1973. And the Methodist churches are leaving for a lot of the same reasons. There's a document my parents shared with me, and in it a Methodist minister gives three just general headings as to why churches are leaving. The first, he says, is denominational leadership, which would be bishops and district superintendents. Many have abandoned core Christian beliefs, such as the authority of Scripture, the resurrection of Christ, and the atonement. The second reason is that denominational leaders, your bishops again, this isn't a sweeping statement for all, but there are a good number who no longer act with integrity and refuse to operate by the denomination's stated covenantal vows. In the PCA, we have our book of church order. In the United Methodist Church, they have their book of discipline. And there are many who are ignoring the clear black and white print in the book of discipline. And then the third reason is that leadership is pushing out any clergy that would disagree. Now, we need to note that none of this is unique to the United Methodist Church. This is not a uniquely Methodist problem. Now is just their appointed time to face and respond. This exact same thing has happened in the Episcopal Church already, which is why you will find Anglican churches in the United States. It's already happened in the Baptist Church. Southern Seminary in Louisville, which is now the largest seminary in the world, faced many of these same problems back in the early 90s. The Lutherans have dealt with this, and so have the Presbyterians. This is not unique to the Methodists. When we think about our own congregation... We remember that issues of theological rot are the reason that Trinity Presbyterian Church exists today. And it's also the reason that First Presbyterian Church on Shiloh Road now belongs to the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and not the PCUSA. This drift into unbelief and apostasy, again, is not a Methodist problem. It is one we all must guard against. They are simply the illustration of the day. So why begin here? Well, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders and he tells them, be on guard. After I leave, he says... Fierce wolves will come in among you. They will speak twisted things and attempt to draw away the disciples after them. Now, who is Paul talking to? He's talking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. 
He's speaking to those to whom he'll write the letter to the Ephesians. And this is a healthy, thriving church. You'll remember that there's a riot in Ephesus. So many people have come to faith. And they've rejected their previous ways that those who made their business Those who did business and made their living by sinful means, they're going broke. And so they riot. This is a very influential church. And yet here is Paul warning them, saying, be alert, pay careful attention. False teachers, wolves, heretics will come into the church and attempt to lead many astray. And sadly, we see that there was reason for this warning. You know the last thing we read about the church in Ephesus in the Bible? They're one of the seven churches that Jesus addresses at the beginning of Revelation. And about the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil and patient endurance, And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false? That sounds great. He says, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and that you've not grown weary. But ends there, this is a church I want to be a part of. And he says, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. See, I'm not just picking on my former denomination. I obviously hear a lot about it because I talk to my parents and they are very active and very talkative and very concerned about the future of their church. But this could happen to any of us. If the Ephesians could be rebuked by the Lord and told, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. If that could be said to them, it could happen to any of us. And so we must heed Paul's words and keep watch. The points, kind of in my standard practice, like point one will be (laughs) like 80% of the sermon and then Points two and three will be jammed together at the end. But that first large point is that we must pay attention to our own hearts. Especially, again, a lot of you just will get to sit here today and smile and just think about how how much it cost for the Lord Jesus to buy you. But for myself and for our elders, 
This is a weighty text. That we are to pay attention to our own heart, the, the leaders, that's number one. And then number two, pay attention and guard from threats that come in from outside and that arise inside. So we'll see that in a moment. First, let's pray. Father God, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Would you speak to us by your spirit? Would, be, would we be fed and nourished and exhorted and admonished? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text is Acts 20, verses 28 through 31. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Paul is giving a charge to these Ephesian elders to watch over themselves and over the people. And the first thing we see is that there is a threat we are to watch that comes from within our own hearts. Elders, pay careful attention to yourselves. What good will it do the church if I am a mess? What good will it do the church If my life is not in order, if my house is a wreck, how will I be able to care for the house of God? How did the church in Ephesus abandon the love they had at first? Did they just wake up one morning and a switch flipped in their mind? I would imagine it was a very gradual process that came partly from church leadership not paying careful attention to themselves. There are damaging, painful consequences when a pastor or a missionary or a a ruling elder does not pay careful attention to themselves and they fall into grievous sin. It's not saying that they're irredeemable after such a fall. There's no sin so great that it cannot be washed by the blood of Christ, but we can make quite a mess and cause ourselves and others a lot of pain. And so Paul exhorts these leaders to watch themselves. Guard your spiritual and moral purity 
We are never to think that we are beyond a particular sin. We're never to think that we are beyond or immune to temptation. I remember my mom telling me in high school that an unguarded strength is a double weakness. Elders and ministers must guard themselves first of all. Derek Thomas was preaching a sermon on this text at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson. And he asked his elders a number of questions. He says, where do you stand in your relationship with God? Where do you stand in your relationship with holiness and consecration? Are you in the word? Are you feeding your own souls, first of all? Do you have a regimen for reading the scriptures, of studying them, of feeding your own souls before you feed others? Be careful about yourselves. Are you attending the means of grace? Are you constantly diligent in the place of prayer? Do you love the gatherings of God's people? Do you love Christ? Do you love him more this year than you did last year? You know, in any, in any denomination where you see an abdication, an abandonment of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, I think it's safe to bet that the theological rot began when those elders and pastors and seminary professors when they were not pursuing holiness and fleeing sin and feeding on Scripture and crying out to the Lord in prayer. We are to pay careful attention to ourselves. And then in verse 28, Paul uses the imagery of a shepherd protecting the flock from wolves. So you see that elders aren't just called to watch themselves, they're also called to pay careful attention to the flock. In my ESV, it says, care for the church of God. If you have an NASB, it's a more accurate translation of the Greek. If you have an NASB, it says, shepherd the flock, shepherd the church of God. We're very familiar with this image of a shepherd. It's common in the Old Testament. So many people were shepherds. Moses is a shepherd when he's out in the wilderness and is called. David is a shepherd. We have the most famous and well-known psalm, which tells us, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And we see this continue into the New Testament. The Lord Jesus will say in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own and my own know me. And I lay my life down for the sheep. Isn't that one of the most comforting titles that Jesus takes to himself? 
when he says, I am the good shepherd. And then we have Paul here telling these elders who are under shepherds, who have the weighty responsibility of overseeing the king's flock. He says, don't let them wonder. Watch out for their health and defend them from enemies. And then Paul says something that is very sobering. It's very sobering to me and sobering to our elders, but not for the rest of you. For the rest of you, you should beam. You should be given an incredible confidence and boldness so that you could approach the Lord and talk to him in prayer. Paul says, shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's an amazing statement. He's saying, these saints, these dear ones, at one time in their lives belonged to Satan. They were slaves who were treated harshly and cruelly. But I have purchased them. And they don't belong to the enemy anymore. They are mine. And what was the currency he used? Silver? No. Gold bullion? No. Bitcoin? No. It cost the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your freedom and redemption from slavery to adoption cost the Lord his life. We sing of this in the hymn, The Church's One Foundation. In this line, the her would be the church. But in the first stanza, near the last two lines, it says, From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life, He died. It cost Jesus Christ his life to purchase you out of bondage. Maybe your response is, I'm not worth it. I'm not worth that cost. He would disagree. Paul tells these church leaders, shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You know, it's no, it's no coincidence that, that as a minister moves more and more into a rejection of the Christian faith, they will, be, they will become more and more uncomfortable with the word blood. They don't like it. I personally know a minister. This is not a a preacher story. I know a minister who will not say the word blood in a worship service. They'll give all kinds of reasons. It's gruesome. It's manipulative. It's gory. You're just just saying it to, to manipulate people. And, and when it comes to the Lord's Supper... This minister will hold up the cup and say, the love of Christ poured out for you. 
Paul, on the other hand, is telling these elders, you have a weighty, solemn duty to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I thought of an illustration. This may be bad. If it's bad, just for... If it's bad, the Holy Spirit will just cause you to forget it. I, I pray. I just... The, the, the thought of caring... Just imagine you go into the office and, and your boss comes in and your boss just delights in his children and he's brought the children to work that day and he has to get on a phone call. And so he says, could you, could you please for, for 30 minutes watch them while I take this call? And are you, are you going to let them just go run out in the parking lot or dive into the custodial closet and start putting things in their mouth? You're, you're going to be watching these children like a hawk. They belong to your boss, and he loves them. God places the care of his blood-bought people in the hands of pastors and elders. John Calvin comments here and says, Surely there is nothing that ought to be more effective in motivating pastors to do their duty joyfully than considering that the price of the blood of Christ is committed to them. You are a valuable bunch. Don't forget that. So much so that it was nothing less than the blood of the Son of God that purchased your freedom. We're to watch ourselves and shepherd the church of God. Then he goes on to say, we're to guard from the threats that are both outside and will come in and that are inside and will rise up. Verse 29 and 30. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Who are these fierce wolves? Well, Jesus helps us answer that question a little bit. In in Matthew 7, 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. And what do wolves do? In John 10, we're told that they snatch up the sheep. In Acts 20, we're told that they draw the disciples away from the gospel. In 2 Timothy 3, we're told that they oppose the truth. And in 2 Timothy 1, and In 1 Timothy 1 and 2 Timothy 2, we're told that they lead people to make shipwreck of their faith and to embrace ungodliness. And Paul warns that these wolves will come in, meaning they will enter the church from the outside. And also, he says, from among your own selves will arise. So this is an internal threat. This is a subtle threat that will arise and lead the sheep astray. And this word arise indicates that these wolves were secretly nurturing this. 
and were waiting for their chance to make their move. And I think we should note that the internal threat is really the greatest to the church. Right? The, the, the internal threat is greater than the, the atheist and the secularists and the, the, the humanists that think we're crazy. Right? When you think of the nation of Israel, their greatest threat was not the Philistines or the Syrians or the Babylonians. Their greatest threat was false prophets in the midst of them who took the truth of God and twisted it and distorted it and carried away the people into idolatry. You know, this is why I'm so thankful for our church government, specifically as Presbyterians. I know church government does not keep you from falling into this because obviously we dealt with this same thing. But it is nice to have a plurality of elders. Meaning I'm not the only one steering this ship. I have one vote just like everyone else. And it may surprise you as well that pastors, we sometimes can exist in our little ivory towers where we just get paid to study and think and we might be a little more disconnected to reality than some and yet we have ruling elders. Ruling elders who are elected by the congregation and can bring pastors back to earth at times or humble us if necessary. I'll say that Ruling elders are a huge benefit to the PCA and help hold us in line. But I want to make a few comments, just descriptors of wolves. I know we're running out of time, um, but I, I found an article by Steve Brown. He's an old Presbyterian seminary professor, and he, uh, he wrote an M.O. on wolves. He called it Wolfology 101. thought it was helpful. And he gives four things that wolves do. He says, first, they distort the good news. We need to be so familiar with the original that we are able to sniff out counterfeits. And that especially applies to our pastors and elders. You know, my sweet wife has a nose for this, a nose for the gospel. She can, she can smell it if something is off and out of accord with the gospel. We need to be able to, to smell that. The, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done on behalf of, of sinners. And the more familiar we are with that message and its implications, the more we'll be able to recognize any distortion. The second thing is that wolves have hidden agendas. Now, it could be prestige, it could be power, it could be money, 
But Paul says in Galatians 4, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Look for humility in your shepherds. Third thing wolves do is that they impose heavy burdens on sheep. In Galatians 5, you'll, if you haven't gotten there in Sunday school yet, you will. In Galatians 5, uh, the wolves are imposing a yoke of slavery on the sheep. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So here's here's a smell test that could be healthy. Does this person make you feel guilty and tired and condemned when you are with them and talk to them? Watch out for such a person. The fourth thing they do is they lie about God. Sometimes he's portrayed as the celestial policeman who is looking for ways to catch you doing something wrong, something that displeases him. And if he catches you, he'll, he'll break your legs. They'll make you feel like an orphan. And that one day his, his patience will run out if you sin again, and he'll say, that's it, I've had enough, I'm done. But again, back to Paul in Galatians. In Galatians 4, Paul says, we were those enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has, spent this, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Wolves will lie about that. And I want to end with a Steve Brown quote just to finish it off. He says, It is the truth that no profound relationship can be established with God until you come to him with nothing to offer but your sin. You also know that the relationship with him is not maintained by your obedience and righteousness, but by his grace and Christ's righteousness. You know, too, that power comes from living an ongoing life of repentance. And then he gives his definition of that, which is knowing who you are, who God is, what you've done, and then telling him. But it doesn't end there. We are to share all this with our brothers and sisters in Christ and with those who are not yet a part of the family.
be on guard. Pay careful attention to yourselves and from those who will come in and from those who will rise up. Guard against those who would distort the good news. Guard against those who would weigh you down with heavy burdens. Guard against those who would lie about God. If the Ephesian elders needed to hear this, then so do the Presbyterians, and so do the Baptists, and so do the Methodists, and all the rest. I'm going to end with this word of hope. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against a foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. Let's pray. Father God, we begin by confessing that our strength and our security is found in you. That you are our defender. You are our guide and sustainer. You cherish us and you are with us to the end. Your son has said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, we pray for those brothers and sisters in other denominations who are having to think through these things. We pray that you would sustain them and guide them and give them wisdom. Would you bring clarity on these issues so that they might move ahead? Father, would you protect us? Would you bless and protect our elders? Would you bless and protect this people that we might be on guard from those threats that might arise from within or outside? Fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on his once for all work for sinners. And we shall be safe. We ask this all in his name. Amen.